Listener Production. You are listening to episode 103 of the Howie Games Part B with golfing guru Ian Baker Finch. Let's get on with it. So, Finchie, you've got that claret jug behind you there. 1991 Open at Royal, Royal Birkdale, and it's great to see you smiling about it now. What are your memories of the tournament that defined you as a golfer? Um, I guess the, my, the best memory I have is the shooting 64 on the Saturday, playing so well to get into the last group again for the third time, playing alongside my mate Mark O'Meara, who I've known so well for, for so long. On the tee, Ian Baker Finn. And uh, shooting 29, the front nine, on the Sunday. This is Baker Finch for a birdie at the second. And he's made it. This is the man that's putted so well during the past few days and one of the few in this field that have done so. And he's now leading the Open Championship at five under par. So they're the, they're the things that really define that championship. The fact that I played so well on the back nine Saturday. Uh, last group again, 29 the front. But just everything about that week, I came in in great form. I came in believing in myself. Uh, first time ever in a major, I actually felt like I could win it. I knew it was my goal to win a major and everything I did was to try and do that. But I really felt like, hey, if I can just do what I normally do, if I can somehow treat this like a regular tournament and just go play the way I've been playing, I could win this. And, and I did. Yes, beautifully hold. And goes to six under par, two strokes ahead. And I had that feeling a few other times over the next couple of years. Uh, and I didn't win, but I played really well, but just didn't win, finished top ten a few times, whatever. But that that week was um, it was a relaxing week. I had Jenny and Haley with me. You might be able to see a little photo there in the background of when I won. Uh, Haley was two years old, you know, inquisitive, trying to see what that shiny silver thing was and Jenny was pregnant with my youngest daughter Laura so um, yeah it was uh, just a special week very very relaxing Steve Ban, a good buddy of mine was over coaching Robert Allenby and a couple of the young guys Glenn Joyner from the Australian golf team he stayed with me so he, he kind of kept us um, normal if you will family life during the week which we liked we're, we're pretty basic. When Jenny and I, and, and when we had the family travel, we'd have a friend with us or we'd try and rent a, a little house. So we'd just sort of keep it pretty normal. And, um, you know, went on, went on to win it, went on to reach the goal and do all the right things. Couple, pretty special. A couple of questions for you about it. You wake up on the Sunday morning, as you said, after shooting a, a 64, the pink shirt, Finchy. Yep. You were always a style merchant. <laughs> Tiger wears his red shirt. Was it pink because you're a style merchant? Did you think, wow, this could be the shirt I'm wearing when I have that photo that changes my life? Or was it just, right, there's the pink, I'm ready to roll here? It's a magnificent shirt I was, too. I, I've still got it. I wear the pink. Actually, I've got it in the clubhouse at Royal Birkdale, the shirt. I've <laughs> donated all my memorabilia to the clubhouse. Actually sent the medal back and everything. I've got it all there in the clubhouse. It's pretty special. But, yeah, I'd worn pink the year before when I was in the last group. 
And uh, I liked it. It looked good. Jenny loved it. Haley's favorite color was pink. Um, so I was going to wear that pink shirt again on, on the Sunday. And, uh, you know, if you look back now, there's been quite a few players have worn pink on this. Rory McIlroy wore pink when he won the Open. And mm-hmm. Justin Thomas, when he won the PGA, he wore pink. Arnie used to wear pink a lot. Um, yeah, I just liked it. But it, once again, it wasn't like, hey, I'm going to look so good in this pink shirt at the end because half of Australia was probably saying, you wanker, what are you wearing pink for? But it's, uh, yeah, I, I felt good in it and uh, I was, you know, strutting my stuff at that time, you know, thinking I was pretty good. You were strutting your stuff. I watched it again last night, the, the, the highlights, and it's incredible shots around the 18th which is obviously the 72nd hole on the Sunday, and there's the Bobbies, the, the um, English policeman leading you through just this mass of people and then you walk out onto the green and you've got your glasses on, the, there's a huge roar. It's a, it's a very dramatic scene. Very emotional moment. Plenty of time to think about things. Yeah, it, it is. And uh, Marco Mira actually lost his shoe. He kind of staggered through. He had to find his shoe and put his shoe back on. And um, over the years, they've tried to put two or three layers of fencing in to stop that. But it's a part of the British Open history, mate, that everyone rushes out onto the 18th fairway and the bobbies sort of walk you up. Um, and, and stay around you so that they can't get to you because it only takes one idiot to know and you can't finish and, you know, what happens then. So, um, as I said, it had been the third time I'd been in the last group, so it had been the third time I'd experienced that, which was very, very cool. And, uh, you know, thousands of people in the stands. And um, I, I wished... Now that I had been aggressive in the way I played the hole and tried to make par or birdie, um, but I thought, I've got a three-shot lead. I'm going to hit it in the left rough because there was a big pot bunker at about 265, and the only way I could mess up was either to shank it out of bounds, which I was never going to do, or hit it in that bunker. So I thought, I can hit it in that rough and make five all day, so that's what I did. I hit it down the left side. I hit a six iron for my second short right of the green to avoid the other bunkers and, uh, you know, played for five basically. So I didn't try and do anything special at the last. I just wanted to get my name on that jug. There's some famous audio and you're obviously talking to your caddy and you've stuck it close and you've just said, you like that one, Petey? Yeah. Brilliant audio. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's was the 16th hole. We're playing into the right. wind, long hole, 465. And I uh, hit a good drive and a four iron. And uh, he was saying, look, all you got to do is, is hit this nice and easy, just get it up to the back of the green, two putt for par. And I just ripped this four iron straight at the flag. And I said, you like that one, Petey? You like that one, bud? And he said, I love it. I love it. <laughs> like that one, Petey? I love it. You like that one, bud? Love it. Right behind the pin. It's beginning to look like the victory walk. Um, but yeah, I was I was hitting it well, and um, that that day pretty much hit where I wanted to hit it every time. And it was only 
a couple of times, like on 18, that I aimed away from where I really would like to have gone, but, uh, you know, it's just being sensible. Well, he's dreamt of this moment many times, I'm sure. This for the Open. In she goes. I wonder if you'll keep that ball and put it on a little back and stick it on the mouthpiece. Or maybe we can go to some lucky lad or lassie on the side of the green. A great moment. Victory for Australia. And how proud they'll be. Benny and Haley. Daughter Haley. The claret jug, obviously you're, uh, as you mentioned, Jenny is pregnant. You've got a little one. Do you have a couple of drinks out of the claret jug or is it you're just exhausted and you're a family man? How does one celebrate achieving their life's ambition? Ian Baker Finch already with a glass of champagne in your hand. You're the open champion. Has it sunk in yet precisely what you've achieved? Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. It's the first time Wayne Grady's ever bought me a glass of champagne. <laughs> Normally it's a Forex or a Foster's or something, but cheers, Wayne. Um, Hasn't really sunk in, no. has it? <laughs> it feels pretty good. It feels great. Um, that night we had uh, drinks out of it. There was a pub down the down the road from the little village we were staying in that sold uh, VB and Foster's in the big cans. So uh, Robert Allenby and Glenn Joyner and uh, a few of the boys um, went down to the pub and grabbed some beers. Uh, a few other media guys came around and they bought Aussie red wine that they'd found at the pub. You know, in those days, I wasn't going to go fork out a couple of hundred bucks for a bottle of Grange to travel with me to have in case I won the claret jug so I could have a Grange out of it, right? It's, it's just, <laughs> I didn't think that way. But, yes, we had Aussie red wine and, uh, yes, we had plenty of Aussie beers and everyone had a drink out of it. And then later that night, I put a nice bottle of, of Aussie Shiraz in it and we went up to the club and uh, Jenny and I and Steve Van and the, the guard let us in. I showed him, hey, uh, this is the jug I won today. And we went and walked the last hole and, and had a drink together there. So I don't think Jenny had a drink, though. She might have held the jug because she was pregnant with our, our second daughter, Laura. But it was, was good times, good memories. And over the years, I always pull it out uh, the Sunday night of the Open Championship if I'm home here and uh, toast the new champion. Uh, when Molinari won, we, we put a lovely bottle of uh, Italian wine in there, and you know we try and make it make a bit something a bit special out of it. That is fantastic, Finchie. My we're talking about memories. My favourite memory on a golf course. You won't remember. We were covering the uh, PGA for Channel Ten. Yep. We played eighteen holes together, and you were just talking about your career. And it's still such a, a wonderful memory for me. But I reckon on the back nine, you started to explain to me about the game of golf and what it can do to you when it turns on you, which is obviously an interesting part of your story. What happened, Finchie? What happened mm. was I fiddled with my swing. I lost my confidence because I started to see a shot that I didn't like and I, I kind of lost a bit of confidence and then every once in a while I'd fear that shot and then I feared it every time I saw out-of-bound stakes down the left and then I feared it on the first tee because everyone was watching and I didn't want to hit it then 
it's not like I did it all the time and my game was still really good. My short game was as great as ever. It was just a little bit of a, a fear factor. Now back on the first hole, watch the Aussie, Ian Baker Finch. Watch the wind, watch his hat, and watch the ball all at once. Ouch. Hat comes off, ball goes dog leg left. I mean, it's wide of left. It's 120 yards. That's a wide fairway. He's over by the hotel, over by some of the curio shops. They sell souvenirs over where the Aussie is. And it just sort of crept in and it got to a point where I couldn't seem to get over it or past it. Um, and I just didn't feel, I still loved the game. I missed 15 cuts in a row and go home Saturday mornings and play with the guys at the club. It wasn't like I was coming home at night and kicking the cat. But I just couldn't figure out how to, I could now with what I know now and I know about the game and of course the driver's easiest club in the bag to hit now whereas in those days it was the hardest obviously when you're trying to hit it far with a tiny little head. But anyway, it was a mental issue and I think I tried to fix the physical side of it rather than trying to fix the mental side of it uh, and allow myself to go play the way I still could but just not under pressure. It's, Hard, hard to deal with for a while because it made me feel bad about myself that I couldn't get over it. You know, it was kind of embarrassing the way I played sometimes and I wished I'd been able to maybe get angry and sometimes I'd throw my club down the fairway when I'd hit a bad drive to try and force myself to get angry but in the end I'd just be laughing with the other two players I was with and, you know, joking about it rather than really being angry and and maybe getting over the mental side of it that way. But anyway, um, I think if it happened now, I'd be better prepared to deal with it. Then it was, why am I continuing to do this? So I've got two young kids at home and a great life, and I know I could go do something else and feel better about myself. Um, I think I'll just step away from the game and uh, go do something different. It, it's funny, if I can um, carry on with that thought, I had missed 15 in a row in 95 and I'm cuts in, cuts in the, on the PGA tour and I missed 11 up to the British Open in 1996 and I played the Open uh, at Lytham in 96 uh, Tom Watson had a shoulder industry a shoulder uh, injury and couldn't play and his caddy Bruce Edwards caddied for me and Bruce said to me he said you there's nothing wrong with your swing except on the tight driving holes. Why is that? I, said, I wish I knew, mate. I wish I knew. It, uh, but he could see, and he, he could see how frustrating it was for me. And it got to a point where, because I was hitting so many drivers every day to try and figure it out, it was really just with the driver. Um, I injured my shoulders and I had to get them basically rehabbed. And I had some issues with my feet. I had to have my toes taped up to separate them and, you know, they'd kind of cramped up all the practice I'd been doing. So in, at the end of 96, I came back to Oz and that's when I started working for Channel 10 the following year. In 96, I worked for all of the, all of the companies, ABC, 10, 9 and 7, I believe. <clears throat> so while I was getting the injuries fixed, I went and worked for TV. And that was the start of my career now inadvertently, I thought I'll just get these injuries fixed, I'll practice hard for a year, I'll come back and be a golf pro again. But um, that showed other producers and other people that 
I was pretty good at television, or at least I could do it. And uh, I couldn't play golf anymore and didn't play well enough to play professionally, so that was the start of it all. A couple of things there, Finchie, and I don't want to dwell on this with you. So what is it like when the game you love becomes a real mental barrier, a mental issue, a mental torture? Like how bad was it in your mind when you went from being top 10 to to missing cut after cut? What does that do to an athlete? Uh, well, to me, it was um, demeaning. It was embarrassing. It was, I, I felt terrible. Everyone was watching, especially when I came back to Australia because I, I used to come back to Australia and loved it because the crowd loved me and I loved the crowd and I loved the golf there. And when I started to play poorly, it was like uh, I became a bit of a sideshow. You know, all of the, all the media would follow me around just to see you know, when, when I was going to have a blow-up. Um, so it, it was – the hardest thing was I couldn't figure it out. That was the worst thing for me. It wasn't just a matter of, hey, you know, i got to get fitter or i got to get stronger or I've got to do this or I've got to do that. It, it was uh, um, it was just totally mental because I could go shoot 66 on Wednesday in the Pro-Am and I'd shoot 76 on Thursday in the tournament. So that's uh, that's mental. So what did you learn about yourself? Um, some good and some bad. You know, I, I wished I'd been tougher. If I'd been tougher, maybe I would have been able to handle it better. Um, I might have been able to fight my way through it. Um, but I think the way I handled it, if you ask people that were around me at the time, they would say, boy, Finchie handled that pretty well because it must have been tough to be on top of the world in 1991 and at the bottom of the valley in 1996 five years later so I think now at, at my age and talking to you and talking to various people about this now um, I could probably say I'm proud of myself the way I handled it in some ways but um, in other ways I look back and think boy if I if I'd just been mentally stronger or tougher or if, if uh, someone had been able to get to me and say just do this Right, do this for a year, you'll get out of it. You know, I, I think now that's what I'd do. I'd, I'd figure it out. Did it bring you to tears, the game, at that point? Yeah, a couple of times it did, yeah, for sure. And especially when I played, you know, in 96, I missed the cut at the Open and I went home and I didn't play again at all for more than six months. And in 97, I thought, well, I'll, I'll start practising and I started working with Gary Edwin, another coach up on the Gulf Coast that we all know so well. And uh, I was in the hopes of trying to play, but I wasn't really playing well enough to go compete. And I went over to the Open Championship the week before. I travelled with Gary and Grant Dodd and a buddy of mine, Kevin Cross, and we went and played golf for a week. And I was going to do the television at the Open. And when I got there, a lot of the guys, uh, the Aussie boys, would say, Finchie, you've, you've played in every Open since 1984. Why would you miss this one? You know, just tee it up. See how you go. So... Um, um, I wasn't going to play. My caddy had gone home. No, Kevin was going to caddy for me. He'd gone home. And Todd Woodbridge was there and he was staying in the same hotel as us. And he said, Finchie, I'll caddy for you if you want to play. So uh, I played and I shot 92. <laughs> I didn't play again. So that was the day. That was, the, that was my fork in the road. That was the turning point. I went out. I was so nervous. I've got a big, long, flowing swing. 
And I look mm. back on a few of the swings I saw on TV that day. It was like I was so stiff and sore and tight and nervous. And I hit it in every bunker and I missed every fairway and I missed every putt. And, uh, you know, I shot 20 over par. And then that, that was when I decided, hey, I'm going to go do television and some course design or whatever else. So that, that was the day. I, I remember crying in the locker room. Jenny was there and uh, Gary Edwin was over there and uh, Todd Woodbridge, of course. And I was like, I, I, I can't do this. I'm, I'm not going to put myself through this again. So I didn't play the second day. I feel bad that I did that. But I just couldn't force myself to get up and do it again the next day. And I, I withdrew and went home. More of Finchie in a moment. There are a heap of episodes in the back catalogue now, some you may have missed. Why not go back and check them out? Like episode 29, featuring one of the show's most popular guests, former F1 ace Mark Webber. Dangerous caper racing cars. An awful accident. Because How fast are you going? Um, well, probably took off at 300. Kilometers an hour. Yeah, 300 k. But then the car obviously decelerates a lot when it's when you've got that whole surface area of the car braking against that. So I mean, the speed backs off a lot, obviously. But you still got this thing which weighs 900 kilos, like a leaf just flying around. <laughs> so I thought that if I go into the trees, the branches. You know, I know how thin the windscreen is on this car. You know, these cars aren't. They're designed to do a lot of things in terms of a crash. You know, impact with other cars, impact with barriers, impact with lots of different scenarios. Head on, rear on, side on, rah, rah, rah. But they're not designed to go in trees. And, you know, you think about it. It's incredible how when people say you have, when it all comes before you and you think you're going to, you know, you could, you know, cop it, um, it does slow down. The frame rate was so slow. I was thinking, I thought of, and mum, my sister, I thought of all the, obviously, females in my life. I'm thinking, wow, this is, maybe this is it. Maybe this is... This is, you know, 22 at Le Mans. You know, I might meet my maker here. And um, so it was It's quite intense. That's Mark Weber on episode 29 of the show. Back to IBF. So you went into the world of television, Finchie, where now you are the man, you're a star. In those initial days in television, you've just stepped away from being a professional golfer. A lot of people... The last place they'd want to be now is a golf course after what you've described and you're watching other people do what you were doing. Was it difficult or did you just put it in a box and think, right, I'm done with that now. I've had a wonderful career. I've made a lot of money. I've got the trophy I've always wanted and I'm moving forward. Like, How did you deal with the fact you were still at a golf course week in, week out? The hardest time was the 98 Open at Royal Birkdale. That's when I started doing the television for the U.S., so that was the toughest time for me was actually showing up and people saying, oh, he won it here last time and now he can't play at all. That was the hardest thing of all was the fact people would say he can't play anymore. When I'd go out with my mates and still shoot in the 60s, I couldn't compete anymore because mentally I wouldn't allow myself to, you know, if I was three under par coming up the last, I'd hit it out of bounds. It was just stupid stuff. It wasn't that I couldn't play, I just wasn't, mentally tough enough to to compete so that was the hardest thing I guess for me but once I got over that and and it became more of a regular occurrence that I was there the people on tour knew that I was a a major winner and I had played well for a long while and I'd kind of lost it I wasn't the first professional golfer on the PGA Tour to lose his swing or or lose his confidence so most people kind of get it Um, I hadn't made a lot of money necessarily 
compared to my family, you know, just regular guys working for a salary, yes, I had. And I owned a nice home in Sanctuary Cove on the Gold Coast and I, I drove a BMW. But I wasn't like the, the kids these days that are making tens of millions of dollars. I still needed a job and I still wanted to work and I still wanted to excel at something. So I just poured all my energy and all my resources and all my mental ability into being the best I could be at commentary. A little bit of course design I did here and there, not a lot, but um, so I think that was what I had learned from being a professional golfer and an athlete for so long, I then put into the other side. And you know what it takes. It's not just a matter of showing up. There's, there's a lot more to it than that, right? And so uh, I, I prided myself on that. I'd get to the tournaments early and I think the players saw the fact that I was there Tuesdays and working hard and uh, putting the same effort in to, to be a commentator or an analyst or an announcer, whatever you want to call us. And it was fun because it was golf. You know, I was still doing what you do now so well. It was, it was fun being involved in the game that I loved and the sport that I had once excelled in. And uh, uh, I felt like I could relate to the players in my commentary. This is huge for J Zach Johnson. It's, it'll feel like a major for him. The local boy, his ninth victory. And he's done it. With his coach, Mike Bender, on the bag, Zach Johnson takes home his hometown event. He's got to be ecstatic. Let's talk about golf broadcasting then, if you've got a little bit more time. What, what's the key to your job, do you think, when you and you, you know, you're on the biggest broadcast on the planet now in golf? What's the key to, to successful golf announcing or commentary, as we call it here? You've got to entertain the audience. That's the center of the green as he looks at it. And that's a good looking shot, and he's a kick to the left. Beautiful. Spectacular wow. shot. Oh my goodness, what a shot! Uh, he does not know how close that is. Truly remarkable. People are investing. Over here, it's on for three hours. I wish in Australia it was only on for three hours instead of five or six because it's oversaturated and it's too long and no one watches for six hours with all those ads. So people are investing that amount of time in you and your show and your team and we're supposed to entertain you and keep you tuned in. So I feel like I've got a good balance of that. I know the players, I know the game. I know the business now and I like to feel like our team, it's not about me, it's about the team that's broadcasting. Jim Nance is the best announcer in the world and he is such a team player. It's not all about Jim. It is all about Jim in a way because he brings us on the air and says, hello friends, nice to have you here. I'm glad you've invited me into your living room today. That's his attitude. And hello, friends. Welcome to this tradition unlike any other, the Masters on CBS. And that's how I like it to be too. So I try and include everyone in the team. Talk to Frank Novolo, talk to Nick Falgo, bring Dottie in, bring Trevor or Mark Immelman in. You know, it used to be Peter Costas out on the course. Bring them in, you know, include them. And uh, that's what I feel people want to hear. They want to hear experts, golfers, talk golf and entertain them.
and that's what I try to do. It's really interesting you say that, Finchie, and one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast is because whenever people talk to me about broadcasting, I always tell them this story, and this is a podcast about you, but I really want to tell you this story. We were working together on golf at Channel 10, and I hadn't covered much golf, and I was out on course, and we'd done a couple of tournaments, and then Tiger came for the Emirates Australian Open, and it was kid in a candy store for me to follow Tiger Woods round. And I can remember on the first day, I was extremely nervous, and I was out there following Tiger, not being a golf expert, but trying to broadcast my way through it. And about the third time they came down to me, it was you and Grades, and I said something, and you said, he's spot on there, Mark Howard. That's exactly what they're trying to do. Couldn't have said it better myself. And I had so many people text me exactly after you said that because so many people were watching Tiger play. A lot of mates saying, wow, I didn't know you knew so much about golf. Wow, you're doing a great job. But it was only because someone at your stature had complimented me to bring me into the part of the team, which is what you were doing, that the audience then had confidence in me and I had confidence in myself. Jason Day just needs to get this close and take... Yeah, I agree. How he just escaped with the bogey. Let's see how this comes onto the green surface here, if it runs in there smoothly or if it bounces through that kukuyu grass. It's a massive upslope too, Finchy. He's got about a two metre to get above that rise, which he's done there, and he's had to keep rolling. That's exactly what I meant by where he left his second shot in trouble. You bring double bogey into play. And it was the most generous thing anyone has ever done to me in sports broadcasting ever, Finchy. Oh. And I've never told you, and I should have told you, but it was such a simple thing you did that just gave me the confidence to go and do it. And now I try and do that with people that I work with. Good. And you, you taught me a tremendous lesson, Ian, that day. Good. Thank you. It's, it's very true. If you uh, – there's so many ways you can explain it, but if you – if everyone on the team, if you polish their buttons, the, the coat will shine brighter, right? If you, if you make sure that everyone's doing well and feels good and doing their job, and it, it just makes the whole team better. And at the end of the day, like your mate's calling and saying, hey, isn't that great? You know, you, you're really doing a good job. But you were doing a good job. But now you felt like you were doing a good job, so you did a better job because you felt good about yourself. And that's that's the game. That's um, that's the broadcasting game is what I mean. If we all are doing a good job, and Jim Nance is so good at it, Mike Tirico is another one that you would know in broadcasting. Yes. It's just a genius broadcaster and so inclusive and so friendly and so inviting. And I would watch a show just because Jim Nance or Mike Tirico was doing the announcing um, because I know it's going to be special. And I think there's another guy that does such a good job now in the States is Tony Romo. Tony oh. Romo is fantastic. And Jim brought him in and they're mates now. Jim Nance and Tony Romo are partners doing the NFL. And we see the NFL on Monday mornings in Australia. You know, we see that the NFL on Sundays. Anyway, he's that same way. It's inviting. It's enjoyable. It's um it's rewarding that three hours you invest in listening to them 
I don't really care sometimes about who wins the game. I've enjoyed listening to them commentary, their commentary. And I think that's what we do well at CBS. Younger audiences wish we were on HBO and we could say really what we wanted to say sometimes, you know, yeah. um, but you can't, as you know, it's a family uh, environment, network television. So we have to be careful and sometimes it's a little dumbed down in a way. Um, but at the end of the day, if everyone's having a good time and there's a few jokes and a bit of laughter, which you do so well with the cricket, you get the guys laughing and have a good time, it's enjoyable to listen to. And uh, that, that's what makes it fun. It, it, as I said, it's entertainment, isn't it? Yes, we're covering a golf tournament. And yes, I'm lucky enough to be working on the Masters and you want to see the golf. But it's also, we have to entertain the viewer. I love that description of polishing the buttons and thank you for your kind words about the cricket, but that's why I wanted to tell you that story because I've tried to do in the cricket what you showed me was the way on the golf. On on the flip side of that, Finchie, we live in a world of social media and I can come off calling a game of footy or doing a, a game of Big Bash or a test match mm-hmm. or whatever it may be and you cannot please all the people all the time, Finchie. And the modern world lets those that aren't being pleased to let you know directly via social media. How do you deal with the negativity that we get in the modern sports media, in the modern world, really? I I don't think it's probably as bad in America as it is in Australia because America as a nation is a very positive place. But how do you deal with those that say, oh, come on, what are you doing? Yeah, exactly. I... I had to stop looking at Instagram and Twitter until Mondays. I never look at it on the weekends. If there is anything that I've said that's a bit stupid, you know, they're quick to let you know, as you know. Mm. Um, mm. I'm pretty fortunate that I'm not one of the ones they attack. A couple of the guys really get attacked. They can be quite nasty. It should be called unsocial media, actually, not yes. social media, <laughs> yes. because the loudest voices are always the assholes. They're, they're the they're the you know the trolls the the faceless Monday morning quarterbacks they call them over here that know everything about the game and hmm. that that's a shame. Um, so first thing I did when I started to understand what was going on with social media, you know, six or seven years ago, I, I never looked at it during the week. Um, I would have someone tell me if there was something that was good content that could help me be better at what I was doing, but I didn't want to see it. I didn't want to see the the pointed comments if there were any. But, uh, yeah, I think that's one of the biggest things. And Jim Nance isn't on any social media, for instance, and I don't think Mike Tirico does it anymore either. It's like Nick Faldo had a terrible relationship with the British press when he played, and I've been asking him about this lately because we've been spending a lot more time doing these telecasts in Orlando. And he said he never read the papers. He never once for about a decade read a paper. And if he did hear of any one particular um, nasty media person doing something really destructive towards his character, he would refuse to do a press conference in the presence of that person. He basically just wiped them. So um, he, he, but he was so resilient. You see, he and Greg were really mentally tough and that's why they got to number one in the world they were they were capable Curtis Strange was another great one really really good player just mentally tough you know um, I wish I'd been able to be a bit bit more that way but you have to push it to the side and, and just keep doing what you do and, and there's always going to be as you know you can have the best game of your life 
and and there's going to be 10 guys the next morning and say, oh, they're going to get rid of that Mark Howard. He doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, you just, <laughs> you got to let it go, haven't you? I mean, what, what can we do? Finchie, long-term listeners to this show know that I have a couple of kids mm-hmm. that ask questions of our guest. Um, I tell them a little bit about them, normally over breakfast. We're doing this early Australian time, so it was last night over dinner. They formulate their own question. You get my 10-year-old daughter by the name of Sky, Sky who lovely. operates as the Pickle. That's her nickname, Finchie. Mm-hmm. Hopefully you can hear this all the way in Florida. Um, here is the Pickle for you. A few weeks ago, we had Adam Scott on our podcast for the 100th episode. We watched him win the Masters, and you were commentating. It was really good. And in the commentary box, did you get nervous because it was the first Australian to ever win the Masters? Oh, Pickle's a smart girl. Very nice. Yes, I did. And yes, I was crying when he won. Changer. Oh. Unbelievable magical moment. He is now officially the Wizard of Oz. Um, Jim Nance threw it to me, and I'd been out in the in the boondocks down on the on the tower at twelve all afternoon, freezing cold in the rain as play goes through. I'm down on Amen Corner. Seriously, as so I may as well have been in church. It was awesome, just awesome, and. Jim threw it to me when Adam won, and I said, uh, from down under to on top of the world. And Ian, it's green and gold, Jim. From down under to on top of the world, Jim. And at the time, it really was all I could get out, but it was actually so poignant because as an Australian, that's what he was at that time, right? He, was, he had won the Masters all those years that all the other players had had a chance, Greg especially, so many times. Um, someone had finally won that jacket. From memory, I think it was the 73rd playing of, of the Masters or 73 years, you know, we'd been trying to get a, get a winner, an Aussie winner. Yeah, I think that's what the number was. So 2013. Yes, Pickle, I was nervous. I was very emotional to, and happy to see Adam win. He deserved it. It brought you to tears, did it? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah, I'm still a bit choked up even now talking about it. And the same when Jason Day won in 2015 at Whistling Straits, he won the USPGA. I was pretty emotional about it because I knew how hard he'd worked. You know, another Queensland boy had come from a tough beginning. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm vested in the, in the Aussie boys and uh, love to see them do well over here. I don't get to see them that much because they all kind of do their own thing when they're at a tournament and, and I'm doing what we have to do, the TV thing. But whenever I get a chance, I text them or wish them well or, catch up with them. We've got a good bunch of Aussie boys right now. We've got a really good bunch of Aussie players. We do. And it was, mate, it was a treat to have Adam on the on the show and he talked us through the the closing stages and the playoff and it still gives me goosebumps thinking mm. about it now. Yeah, it was um, fantastic. Okay, now you get my eight-year-old, Finchie. Okay. Now, he, he's a bit of a loose cannon, Finchie. Um, <laughs> his name is Mac. But he rolls as the big penguin. Um, you never go. You're never quite sure, Finchy, what he's going to go with the big penguin. Oh boy! But um, sometimes he does, and I say, "No, mate, you can't go with that." But yours is appropriate. So here you go. Uh. Hi, Finchy, big penguin. 
I've been to quite a few places, such as Thailand, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Costa Rica, Panama, America, and Guatemala. Wow. The thing I miss most is the peanut butter we get here in Australia. I love it so much, but I don't think you can get it in Thailand, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Zambia, and all the other places I've been. I heard you live in America. But what's the thing you most miss about Australia? That is an excellent question. You, they're going to take your job, mate, your two kids. <laughs> they're well-travelled for youngsters. Oh, my goodness. I, he must have gone to all of the great surfing places in the world, has he? Spot I, on, Finchie. Yeah, You're I on like it. that. I, three or four of them I know were the best ever, right? Yes. yes. Uh, um, you know, I have it in the fridge, and I always do, is Vegemite. Americans right. don't get it. They... Um, Love the Tim Tams that we give them. We always bring Tim Tams back with us. <laughs> so I love the Tim Tams. Americans love Tim Tams too. Americans hate Vegemite. They don't understand. But they spread it on like you spread on the peanut butter. They spread <laughs> it on too thick, you know. What I miss most about Australia is home and the beaches. Yeah, I, th I think that's, that's the most. That's, that's why I like to go home. When I come home to Australia, I come home to the Sunshine Coast. The best golf, of course, is in Melbourne on the Sandbelt. I love the golf on the Sandbelt in Melbourne. I could spend a, a month there just playing those courses every day. But uh, the, the beaches and the coast and the lifestyle in Australia is what I miss the most. Final question for you, and you've been so good with your time talking about the kids and you're a father and now a grandfather or a pop or whatever mm -hmm. it may become. For all the kids, and we're lucky that a lot of kids listen to this show, Finchie, with their parents for the kids that want to achieve something in their life, in their passion, whether it be sport or music or the arts or academia, what's one bit of advice you could give the youngsters that are hoping to achieve some success? Oh, just love what it is you're doing. Really embrace it, love it, internalise it and have fun with it. Don't make it hard work. Yes, if you want to be really, really good at anything you really love, you have to work hard to be good at it because everyone else is trying to get there too and you have to work a little harder than they are. But at the same time, you've got to enjoy the path and uh, you know, smell the roses, if you will, the great old saying. But, yeah, just, just love it and enjoy it. Ian, you're a wonderful, wonderful man. I cannot thank you enough for coming on the Howie Games. You've thrilled me with some of your stories, especially that uh, Golden Bear <laughs> story. Sorry, mate, I didn't know the kids were listening. I didn't know the kids no, were listening. <laughs> no, mate, I appreciate it. And what I said to you about the golf commentary, it stuck with me forever and a day. So um, thanks a lot, mate. Thanks for coming on the show. Great to be with you, Mark. Really appreciate it. Cheers, bud. What a golfing journey Enos had. Some serious highs to the crushing lows that he talked about when his game deserted him. But throughout, Finchie has always retained his warmth and friendly nature. Whenever anyone mentions Ian, they always say the same thing at some point. What a great bloke. Thanks to Ian for coming on. And as you heard, thanks to Finchie also for teaching me the most valuable broadcasting lesson I've ever learned. A shout out to Das, who is on fire as always, putting this whole thing together. And most importantly, thanks to all you cool cats for tuning in. Scotty James's player profile, then full episode coming up over the next two Thursdays. Until then, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try.
If we try, try, try If we try, try, try Listener.